0: If you're wondering why cats are afraid of cucumbers, just Google it. But if you're wondering why it's taken Adventism so long to embrace the mental health message, you've come to the right place. Today on Stuff Adventists Should Know, Mental Health with Jennifer Jill Schwarzer. When people don't understand a thing, it often feels uncomfortable or even scary to try to make sense of that thing. It seems a lot easier just to say, God will take care of it, or drain a third of the blood, or put Windex on it, instead of confronting the issue and digging for answers. Problems are often very complex, and when it comes to facing the facts, we sometimes have to change our minds about something we believe, which is hard. For example, doctors used to drill holes in patients' skulls to relieve chronic migraines. It makes sense if you want to relieve pressure. But even now, we don't know what causes migraines. We have methods of relieving the pressure that doesn't result in permanent brain damage. So we've come a long way in the field of physical health, which the Adventist movement has contributed a substantial amount of information to. But as a church, we seem to be a little behind in the area of mental health. And that's what I talked to my guest about. I wanted to understand why we've taken so long to embrace psychology and what could help the church make mental progress. I give you Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. Hi, Nick. Hi, Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer Jill is a musician, a speaker, an author, and a counselor, and one of those people you will naturally feel comfortable opening up to.
1: I cannot tell you how many conversations I had with people before I ever got into counseling who In the middle of the conversation, they would say, I can't believe how much I'm telling you. I can't believe I just told you that. I had one pastor tell me once, I'm going to go tell my wife all this because I've never told my wife this, you know. So I I don't know what it is about me, but I, I just felt like I had, you know, a sign on my head that said dump here or something.
0: And after all her kids moved out, she did exactly what every free parent wants to do.
1: I decided I want to go back to graduate school and actually it's kind of a funny story. I was torn between theology, like your wife studied, and psychology. And I went to my husband and I said, would you like to be married to a pastor because that's really kind of the job that's available to someone that studies theology and Mm -hmm. he said no. (laughs) And being (laughs) being the obedient wife that I am, I decided to pursue psychology instead of theology. It was really kind of heartbreaking because my first love is theology. And so i've kind of in a way found a way to repackage theology as a counselor but i'm really all about the scriptures because i they're the you know the power of god unto salvation just like paul said
0: so wait wait so your husband would have rather been married to a therapist than a pastor
1: <laughs> well the therapist can happen in private see i never have to he never has to deal with my work life oh, but if okay. i'm a pastor he has to go to church and sit in the pews while i be the pastor, and Mm -hmm. he wasn't comfortable with that arrangement. So I respected that, and I knew that it would bring a lot of stress onto my marriage, and I just wasn't up to that. So I I acquiesced, and God worked it out.
0: So you don't use your mental magic on your husband?
1: (laughs) (laughs) All the time. We just did some last night. Poor guy. We love each other, though.
0: So let's get into it. What role does science play in your ministry?
1: I think science is a window through which we can see reality. Maybe not a perfect image of reality. It's sometimes influenced by human factors, biases, and so forth come through in the in this, um, scientific process. But there's a window there. It's not a perfectly clear window, but it's a window. And so I do tap into science. And sometimes what science does for me, it's really amazing, is it gives me an idea that I then go back to the scriptures and find out, is that something that God said all along? And the Word of God says a lot about psychology. That's the thing, is it's a great psychology book. Not a diagnostic manual, not a comprehensive volume of treatment methods, but it's The principles of psychology are there embedded in scripture and we have somehow missed it and really, I think, suppressed a lot of the teachings become so paranoid of psychology that we've ended up really um, blocking off biblical psychology and, and healthy psychology along with the stuff that isn't so healthy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so why is that? Where does all that paranoia come from?
1: All right, so I want to go into a little bit of history here because I think it explains why there is a you know an absence of or lack of um, good Adventist counseling. John Harvey Kellogg was given the health message back in, I don't know when it was, it was 18-something. He gets that health message and made it practical with Battle Creek Sanitarium and so forth. So he's taking this thing and running with it and teaching a plant-based diet. Well, the pastors do not want to eat a plant-based diet. They like their meat. Mm-hmm. And they like their dairy products and their sugars. And so they reject the health message. And this fissure is created between the physical health message and the spiritual health message. And in my thinking, the psychological, because it's the segue between the physical and the spiritual, fell between the cracks. And as a result, we've got the physical and people are living six years or even 10 years longer. And we've got the spiritual, which promises eternity. But in the meantime, people are living 10 years longer and wishing they could die because they're depressed. Isn't that interesting?
0: That is really interesting. So going back a little bit to general Christianity, how did psychology enter into the general Christian church?
1: Okay, let me give you a little bit of history of Christianity and mental and psychology or mental health. It used to be that when you needed counseling, you went to the pastor. And it was the church's purview to counsel people. There was really no counseling outside of pastoral counseling. Mm-hmm. And then in the mid-1900s, through Sigmund Freud and his you know, people that came after him, there was this revolution. This, this science was born, the science of psychology. And as a result of that, initially it was, you know— only the crazy people that had therapists. But eventually, counseling became very mainstreamed. And to this point, just about everybody can or, or has a counselor. It's, it's much less of a stigma than it used to be. Well, what happened when psychology started to popularize and, and really sort of, in a sense, hijack the c- practice of counseling from the pastors to these specialists is church people became concerned because now their parishioners were getting very intimate kinds of help with things that were really kind of spiritual issues from people that weren't even believers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so a movement began called the new thetic movement. The new thetic movement is the word new theos is, is based, it's a Greek word and it means admonish and the kind of the grandfather of the new thetic movement was a deterministic, I think it was Presbyterian man named Jay Adams and Jay Adams was really kind of the father of this movement and he wanted christians to return to biblical counseling and so this movement began with him and he did lots of writing and and he would basically come up against and, and refute secular principles of psychology for instance self-esteem like the self-esteem movement you know it's, uh, it's self-esteem is like an accepted thing in secular circles now everybody needs self-esteem well he questioned that he said well, do we really need self-esteem the bible condemns pride in my thinking, then he needed to raise those questions because really, the honestly, the science isn't behind self-esteem. There's as much bad effect from self-esteem as there is good effect if you really look at the science. Now, I would argue that there's something called self-respect or self-worth that is healthy mm-hmm. because what self-worth and self-respect do is they enable me to value myself but also value other people. Too often, with the wrong kind of self-esteem, and I don't want to be a, a terminology Nazi here, but with the wrong kind of self-esteem, we end up needing to take away someone else's value in order to establish our own. So Jay Adams understood this, and he went kind of for the juggler vein of self-esteem, but in so doing, I feel he overcorrected, and I feel he overcorrected on a lot of things. And so the thetic movement in the beginning was um, – It was very – it challenged secular psychology, and it was good in that it was trying to create a biblical foundation for counseling, which was awesome. But the movement itself had to go through some growing pains. And I would say today the movement is much more broad, much more accepting, and much more balanced. So – but that's, you know, something that's kind of outside of Adventism. So the Christian world is going through all these movements – Out of the backlash against secular psychology came a lot of writings by what I would call reactionary individuals um, who wrote books like the book called Psychoheresy. So again, what they did was they took these secular psychological principles, but then they overcorrected and overrejected them. And so I think some of that, you know, Adventists really want to be pure. We really want to do the right thing. We we really don't want to be sucked in by the world. And so all you need is one of those kind of books, and it makes you feel like psychology is just going to destroy you. And, and there are some serious heresies. Well, the main heresy in secular psychology is simply that man can solve his own problems. That's humanistic, and that flies in the face of the gospel. The gospel says... Man cannot solve his own problems without divine help. And so that's that's all I need to know, you know, that secular psychology isn't going to take me the distance. But does that mean that there's nothing of value in it? I think that's narrow and fundamentalist and anti-intellectual.
0: Okay, so that's one of my big questions for you. Where is the balance between the two extremes of humanism and being hyper-religious? Because on one side of the spectrum, you can be so obsessed with self-development and self-empowerment and science and lifestyle methods as a means to self-fulfillment. And then on the other side, you can be so harmfully religious that care is never given to self, and trauma and depression is not paid attention to, but rather ignored. Um, am, am I making sense?
1: You are. No, you you asked really kind of asked this question, and the questions you sent me. You said, "Is there a place for effort and self-development?" What what secular psychology does, is it gives you all these methods. It's very method driven, and there are these, and it's it's not bad method driven. I I use methods. So, so secular psychology gives you all these theories, yes, methods, yes, but there's no source of power. Um, whereas in biblical psychology, you have a theory in a sense, you have methods that you might want to use, but you have a source of power. So that's one of the main differences between the two. So an appropriate use of methods can be very helpful. We want to give people marching orders and things that they can try. But do those methods save the person? No, it's not the methods that save. It's the power of God that can sometimes work through a method better than he can without the method that actually ultimately saves the person. Um, And I I have kind of a beef on the same score with Christians who have extremely method-driven approaches where it's just my way or the highway, this is the only thing that works. We have to realize that methods can be very, very helpful, but the method itself is a vehicle through which the Holy Spirit comes. So I don't know if that answers your question about over-spiritualizing, but I have heard of probably on the over-spiritualizing end of the spectrum of people going to counseling and the individuals trying to do Christian counseling by just telling the person to praise God for everything. And that's all they told the person or, you know, pray for the whole session, you know, and that's all they do, you know?
0: Yeah. I can definitely see those two extremes. Um, I fully believe that prayer and the word are completely necessary for God to change us without a doubt by beholding, we become changed. But on one hand, would we wave Jesus in front of people as a method Of ridding them of sin, we can get a little infatuated with becoming sinless. And then he's no longer your helper, but just a tool that you use to make you perfect. And on the other hand, I have responsibility and decision over my life. I can't just not take care of myself.
1: Well, you had a responsibility to change because you're not living unto yourself. And so you having a besetting sin or a bad habit is not just affecting you, but even if it was just affecting you, you're not your own. So you're not allowed to not take care of yourself.
0: Yeah. So then there's the other extreme where you are not trusting in the power of God. You're not praying. You're not uh, depending on his word to make you a whole person, but rather you are focused on your own methods and your own skills and your own ways of making yourself holy. So in both extremes, though, it's very self-centered. We need to understand the power of God, and then this sounds way off theologically, but we need to understand that we do have power.
1: You have power. It's called the power of the will, and we deny it to our own hurt and ultimately to the hurt of God's cause. There are plenty of passages, uh, Philippians, it says, um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but you don't stop there. It says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Um, You know, um, as you have received Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk you in him, and that is literally regulate your life in him. Everything of value to us in our lives on earth has a blend of the divine and the human. Jesus himself was God and man. The Bible, the word of God, holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. They, were, they spoke. They used their own faculties. Um, and the sanctification process is a blending of the human will with the divine will. I have a, a great testimony about that. I had a client who was bipolar and had been told his whole life he would go flat on his back for months at a time and not speak to anyone, not do anything just like watch TV and lay in bed all day in his depressed phase. He was told basically by his family and by people that knew him, look, you can't do anything about this. It's the disease. It's the illness. And um, you just have to be on the medication and that'll help you. Well, you go on the medication. and It wouldn't completely solve the problem. And he would just be flat on his back again. So anyway, he ended up in a canvassing program. We didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. And I'd finally had it with him, you know, and I got to that point, you know, and I said, you know what, when you say you can't get out of bed, what you really mean is you don't feel like getting out of bed and you have come to believe that that means you can't get out of bed. But the fact is you can choose to get out of bed and he got it and he started to choose to get out. And to this day, he tells me that the power of the will is the thing that keeps him stable.
0: Do you have any advice for somebody who's currently going through something that they cannot overcome like depression or a bad habit or an addiction? Something that I know you have a lot of experience in helping people
1: with. Good question. So they're completely um, not having victory, but they're extremely spiritual praying, but their prayers are all, you know, probably prayers of despair. I mean, I'm gonna say it, what they need to understand is the true power of the will. And they need to understand that that they cannot change their heart, they can't make their emotions any different, they cannot change the fact that they're extremely drawn to that hot fudge sundae or whatever it is, and that they want to binge right now. They cannot change that. We can't change our spots. But what they can do is give their will to God. They can choose to give their will to God in that moment. And He, what he will do is he will refine and purify the will and then give it back to them and that's the difference between the enemy of God and God the enemy surreptitiously seeks out to capture our will and then he holds it captive and he won't give it back to us and that is that food addiction that person has that's the enemy he is taking their will captive through the chocolate and the whipped cream and all the sugar but God on the other hand wants to free their wills, so they temporarily give their will to God, but then God gives it back to them. And they can leave God anytime they want. A lot of this is just becoming so intoxicated with the freedom that is in Jesus that it helps sucker us off our lesser pleasures, you know, of these these addictions that really aren't that hot, if you think about it, because you lose the ability to even appreciate them. But God wants to give us a level of spiritual and emotional pleasure that so far surpasses anything the world can give us through sensuality or substances food sex whatever um, that, that we become intoxicated with that and part of that is realizing the freedom that we have in christ and realizing the freedom we have in christ involves first surrendering you know coming to appreciate that he died to free us and then giving our will to him trusting him to give it back to us strengthened to resist the enemy. That's what I would say initially. And then I would say that person who is so weak-willed also needs to partner with an accountability partner. They need to go to a group therapy. They need to harness the power of human support as well as divine support. A lot of us try to fight these things out vertically and, and just with God and God, I think, says to some of those situations, I will help you when you let people help you too. Because it's sort of human support kind of creates an avenue through which God's spirit can then channel into a person's life. And, you know, it's so contrary to what I was taught as a new Christian. I was taught you were to do everything with just you and God and never depend on people. But that's a very unrealistic view of human life because we are not codependent, but interdependent.
0: So do you have any examples from your ministry that can show how using the will and really starting to do serious work in counseling and in recovery, how that can affect someone's life? Do you have have a story about that?
1: I had a client that came terribly addicted. He was so addicted to pornography. He would download images on 12 computers all day and come home from work. And consume images until he keeled over at 2 in the morning. That's how addicted he was. But he came very serious. He he was ready. And that's part of this whole, the magic of, or not magic, but the power of the will is that you have to be ready to say, okay, I'll, I'll throw myself entirely into this. And he structured his life around recovery. He went to two groups. He had an accountability partner, went back to church, did Bible study. He came to me once a week. and that man walked out of the worst sexual addiction I've ever seen. and And it's not that he never relapsed. like he had a couple little relapses here and there, but he didn't he really was clean um very, very quickly. It was a miracle. But it was also he exercised his will. He knew he had to take up that extra time that was normally devoted to the addiction, with things that were going to lead him away from the addiction. And that's what a person has to do initially when they're getting over an addiction is they have to structure their life very, very carefully around recovery. And that involves group. And there are groups out there. There are 12-step groups for just about everything. And 12-step principles are solid. Um, It's not as definitively Christian. There are also, but there are Christian 12-step groups and there's Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian-based, biblically-based support group kind of thing for a lot of different problems structure your life around recovery which includes group which includes an accountability partner appropriate measures taken to you know get the junk food out of your house get the pornography off your computer put a net filter on stuff like that i think that you know people that are dealing with an addiction should see a counselor um weekly if they can afford it and yeah um it's it that gives an opportunity to go into some of the deeper issues that may have set a person up for addiction and made addiction seem like a safe haven from whatever was going on in their lives. And so you get to talk about that with a counselor. That's where we go with people is we just give people a chance to kind of do a life review. And let's talk about some of the antecedents to your addiction and some of the current triggers, the things that are going on now in your life that you find difficult to manage that this addiction you know, offers you, however flawed, a way of dulling the pain. Let's talk about how to improve those circumstances. And that's what a counselor would do is come alongside a person in their life and and help them start to make changes.
0: Okay. Since you and I, and I'd say most of the listeners are Seventh-day Adventists, we're well aware of the health message and how it's been used pretty successfully for evangelism. But now that more and more people are becoming better versed in psychology and counseling from sources outside of the church. Uh, What would you say the church needs to do to implement this for mission?
1: In two main ways that I can think of. Number one, if we would segue from the the physical health to the mental health, we're gonna have a much smoother transition into the spiritual. So you have the proverbial cooking school People come and learn how to make the tofu and how to bake the bread and how to have sugar-free desserts, and they make friends in that context. And the cooking schools are fantastic. I've done them. I love them. And I love the ladies in our church and the men that are willing to devote themselves to these wonderful programs. They're so important. But if we then would follow up with a program that deals with depression or anxiety We're going to bring some of those people along because a good percentage of those people that came to the cooking class because they had high cholesterol or high blood pressure are now going to also have depression and anxiety and they're going to come to that. Or they're going to love people that have depression and anxiety and they're going to come to that. And it's not threatening because these people are into health. So now they're into mental health. Okay, I'm not threatened by that. And then they're going to start to tap into some of their emotional issues and they're going to realize, man, I've got soul hunger that I have turned to food to satisfy, or I've had six marriages, and, you know, I don't know how to love. And they're going to start to see a need for divine power in that context. And then they will open like a flower in my thinking to the spiritual message. So we're going to much more effectively transition people, whereas going straight from Okay, you want to learn how to make tofu? Great. And then come to our meeting that tells you about the beasts in Revelation. You know, that's like just such a huge leap, you know. So, yeah, I'm saying the machine is going to work better if we have mental health in there. Now some people will transition from physical health right into the beasts of Revelation. And that's awesome. There's people like that. But I'm saying let's think about the we want the majority of the fish in the net, you know. But also if we had instead of – And I I say this with love for my church, but if we had instead of a kind of an argumentative culture in our church where being right is the end all and be all, um, which tends to be a little bit of the flavor, especially of conservative or old school Adventism, like being right is all important. I'm not saying be right isn't important, I'm just saying that this culture makes rightness very very important and as a result flowing out of that culture there's a lot of argumentation a lot of fighting that goes on and we're dealing with that right now in our church and it's sad to me and it's sad to many of us that if we could shift the culture away from so much argumentation into a helper culture where we first and foremost connect with one another and try to help one another through the difficulties of life because guess what life is hard If we created that helper culture, we would be much less inclined to lapse into polemics and polarities. And part of creating that helper culture is bringing mental health into the picture. So that's one way in which we can change the culture of Adventism to where when we bring people into the church, It's not like bringing up someone from the womb and putting them on the street. We've gotta create a warm, nurturing culture in the church so that these new babies live and stay in. And we have a huge attrition rate, and that's to some degree because we don't cultivate our church socially and psychologically, emotionally like we could.
0: Thank you so much to Jennifer Jill for answering these questions so honestly and openly. Uh, You can see Jennifer's work everywhere online. You can look her up on YouTube, watch the seven deadly psychological sins as well as the seven deadly relationship sins. Uh, Find her on Twitter. Also, you can look her up on jenniferjill.org and you can learn more about her services at abidecounseling.us. Stuff Adventists Should Know it was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nick Hosted. Randy Ban is the executive producer. His job is to make sure that each episode is outstanding. This is Stuff Adventists Should Know, and I hope you learned something.